Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number two of You Know What's Fucked Up. I'm your co-host, Tim Hackman. And I'm Allison. We are happy to be back in here in the studio with you. We hope you enjoyed our first episode all about banned books and censorship. And we have a sort of adjacent topic today. I think it kind of builds on the discussion that we had last time. I thought that was a fabulous discussion. I'm going to pat myself on the back for that one. And of course, my amazing co-host, Allison, who just just brought the thunder. Uh, I had people texting me as they were listening <laughs> to it about uh, they were just they would text me things like stats with an exclamation point and data because they were very excited that we uh, <laughs> grounded the discussion in some actual real life stuff, you know. Right. Yeah. So good job, you. Thank you. <laughs> Remember, you can find us online at ykwfupodcast.com. You can always send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions for future shows at ykwfupodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to uh, know what you thought about that first episode and, you know, what you want us to talk about in the future. Tell us what you think is fucked up. So um, we're going to start with our standard disclaimer. Uh, we gave us one last time, I'm, you know, our, our, our legal department. Um, we don't have a legal department, but if they did, they would tell us to, to read this. Um, Alice and I both work for institutions of higher education. Our opinions, of course, are our own and not at all representative of those institutions, nor do we claim to speak for anyone but ourselves. The aim of the podcast here is to examine issues affecting higher education, how it keeps our institutions, our scholars, and our students from reaching their potential, and what we might do about it. So with that in mind, take it away, Allison. Yeah, so this isn't... I don't think it's going to be an easy one today, right? Uh, I know you and I, Tim, we've been talking back and forth about what's the top of mind right now. Um, and because we're human beings that exist in the broader world, uh, we want to talk about free speech on college campuses, uh, particularly political speech and in the context of larger world events, right? We can't ignore what is going on in Israel and in Gaza right now. Um, we do want to start unequivocally condemning the terrorist attacks. The horrific loss of life is heartbreaking for all. And likewise, we condemn the Israeli military's use of, um, you know, force against the citizens of Gaza. This isn't a place that we're taking sides. Uh, we understand that there's a complex emotional history around these issues um, and that these are also part of larger geopolitical questions and contexts as well, right? This is deeply rooted in history. It's also deeply rooted in politics. And there are deep emotional responses from people throughout the country and the world, um, even those who are not necessarily personally impacted by loss of life from their families. There's many who are. Um, and please, I hope you are taking care of you if you are one of those people. But we do understand how much that conversation can be charged. And that's not our expertise or role to say, hey, this is what we should do about it. Here's how we can fix it. Um, there's a lot of details here. You know, Tim and I kind of spitballed, like we're not political scientists, but you know, I'm, I'm a political science librarian. I do talk about these things a lot, but that's not what we're doing in the purview of this podcast. We'd like to talk about what this reflects on higher education, right? Um, whenever there's a hot button issue in the news, we see that play out in college campuses and we see how the actions of student groups and things immediately make it to the top of the New York Times, right? This um, is a particularly charged moment and this political speech is playing out in really um, challenging ways. So this is going to be a challenging one to handle and we're going to talk about it hopefully in a way that is useful for others and actionable. And, you know, we'd like to keep our jobs along this, this conversation. 
Yeah, we also, you know, we're we're educators and we're in the education uh, business, and uh, you know, part of our our job is to to hold space for you know open discussion and for um, maybe ideas that aren't quite fully formed yet to get out there and um, you know and and rattle around with each other. And I, that's that's really to me what higher education is all about. That's what makes it so exciting and uh, really you know a fun uh, and I think an important place to to work. Um, and but we're going to maybe talk a little bit about some of the ways that we've kind of seen that that space for discourse maybe disrupted a little bit in um and it's not a new thing at all um and uh and it you know come obviously it comes and goes anytime there's a there's a big a big thing <laughs> in the news um we were talking about this uh by text sort of in the context of um 911 i was a, a grad student at the time um you know I was, again i was not working on a college campus but i was very uh, engaged with sort of politics and um, the, just the, you know, the feel and kind of what was happening in response to that event and sort of the, then of course the, the push to war, um, which seems to be the only, uh, response that, uh, is, I don't know, politically and socially acceptable sometimes. It's, um, but it, they're very, um, they're very similar, but that was, you know, 22, uh, years ago and, and here we are again. So I think that's, I think that's kind of the, the impetus for our episode today. So, absolutely. I go ahead. I can see the historical parallels for sure. I also see the parallels right to what we talked about previously in terms of book bans. We'll get there, but I think we see how these um, massive geopolitical events also play out in higher education, libraries, free speech, and um, we wanted to kind of tackle that in a meaningful way for our listeners. Yeah. So, with all that being said, you know what's fucked up, Allison? What's fucked up, Tim? The political suppression of speech. That's that's fucked up. And that's what we're here to talk about. Absolutely. Yes. So, um, yes, I want to just start with a little piece that uh, that Allison found in N plus one magazine. Um, Dylan Saba Saba um, is the writer. Mm-hmm. He was actually commissioned uh, by The Guardian to write an article about, quote, the wave of retaliation and censorship of political expression in solidarity with Palestinians that we've seen in the past two weeks, obviously following the uh, terrorist attack and then the, the response. Um, so what's, I don't know, funny, not funny, haha, funny, ironic, troubling is then the piece that the Guardian commissioned on this topic was then subsequently, subsequently killed and never published. So Dylan shared it via uh, N plus one magazine, which is of course how we got to it and found it. Um, and I think the the depths of irony in that, in that particular uh, twist there are, are, uh, are serious, but um yeah, let's start there. I think it's an interesting moment, right? And I, I absolutely see these echoes to post 9-11, right? Because what happened on October 7th, uh, it didn't it didn't spring up out of nowhere, right? There's deep history. We can't ignore the fact that there were other things going on before this event happened. That's not a justification. It's just there are already thinkers, right? There are already people that were talking about the complex issues happening within the Middle East. There were already student groups activated around these issues. Obviously, there are community groups in the United States around these issues. So what happened was that there was like this explosion uh, of conflict. Let's not talk about the violence, right? Like that's so sensitive to me and so close to my heart. But there was also an explosion in terms of, you know, interpersonal conflict in terms of how do we talk about these things? How do we grapple with these things? So there were scholars ready to go. There were writers ready to go. And many people wanted to hear that. And then immediately we kind of saw this wave of 
maybe this isn't the time to talk about the context. Maybe this isn't the time to talk about the geopolitical um, implications, the history, all of those things. So it's an interesting kind of expansion and then retraction that we saw happen really, really quickly. We saw a lot of people being tapped. Hey, you have expertise on, you know, Palestinian history or Israeli history or Jewish history. Can you tell us about this thing? And then when those things were not exactly whatever political powers wanted to hear or corporate sponsors wanted to hear or any number of other things wanted to hear, it was immediately tamped down. Or if perhaps people were talking from a level of, hey, I'm just providing context and academic expertise and weren't appropriately um, showing some level of emotion, right? One way or another, there's a lot of people that are speaking from that place of like, I'm sharing information um, that are immediately getting held up as not doing it right because they aren't showing that like emotional response to one side or the other. Um, which is concerning, right? Uh, that can be hard. And it's also hard in a context where you don't have the full context. I, I just would like to point out, like, we don't know what any number of people are going through interpersonally. Are they talking with their friends? Are they talking with their family? Are they crying at home? Um, to go straight to this, well, they wrote this piece and they don't appropriately care. Um, that kind of like public expectation of emotional response, I think, has gotten really toxic one way or another. I think it is okay to talk about ideas openly and, you know, show your emotional responses a little bit closer to home. Um, so we shouldn't make this assumption that just because what you're seeing isn't the only thing happening for any one person, for sure. Well, you know, as you're talking there, it's interesting the way, you know, the, my mind sort of goes to longer standing and, and pretty well, uh, well acknowledged trends about sort of, you know, kind of anti-intellectualism in American life, right? And this sort of idea that, um, you know, the, the intellectual um, elites and, and people with, um, you know, big ideas and, and who want to talk about complexities and uh, um, things being shades of gray, you know, sort of immediately um, sort of you know, looked at askance, you know, looked at with suspicion in, in favor of kind of big picture, broad strokes, very emotional uh, response to things. I think it's a, um, that's, that's been a long standing um, trend. And that you know, we see that in, in literally every facet of American life, the news coverage kind of being one of the, the big ones, right? Like, you know, we don't want to talk about specifics about how we got to this moment. We don't want to talk about, um, you know, the, honestly the boring stuff but the important stuff um it's it's much easier to show the the carnage it's much easier to show the bombs it's you know that kind of stuff it's easier to show the flag waving or whatever it is um than to actually engage with a, a sort of complex history and a fraught history um and you know so from there we've got other stories about people losing jobs facing censure um losing job offers there was a guy who shared a was an onion headline um, which, if you don't know, is a, a satire site, <laughs> maybe um, one of the better, best ones out there. Maybe um, I think a site that continually um, sort of sort of pushes um, not in an obnoxious or uh, kind of, you know, I don't know, deliberately uh, shocking kind of way, but in a in a intellectually honest kind of way, um, which is what good satire is supposed to do. He shared an onion headline and and was. Uh, removed from a position for for doing so, which again just sort of breaks so many boundaries of uh, of irony that I, I can't even really quite <laughs> quite deal with it. Um, one of the big um, hubbubs and scandals, I don't know what you want to call it, is some students at Harvard University who you know sort of the morning of the 
um, the tax kind of woke up and sort of wrote a, a letter sort of standing in solidarity with the, the Palestinians. Um, and there's been all kinds of, of harassment uh, of them and doxing. Um, there were folks like Stephen Davidoff Solomon, who wrote in the Wall Street Journal opinion section that people sh said, don't hire my anti-Semitic law students, um, sort of equating any kind of you know, questioning of his Israeli policy or any sort of support for uh, Palestinians as, of course, anti-Semitism, which is not at all the same thing. Um, and even even beyond that, for a law professor at a university to say, don't hire students from my own university because of their political speech is, again, really uh, beyond the bounds. Um, there were some law firms that uh, rescinded job offers over the Harvard thing. Um, and there's, there's tons of examples. You can go online, you can find them uh, left and right. Um, and, you know, those kinds of things are, I think that, you know, they serve a couple of purposes, right? There's, there's this sort of idea of outrage and punishment, but then they're also a warning to anybody else who might consider, um, you know, stepping out of line or, or coming up with a take that's, at all nuanced or, uh, or maybe slightly unorthodox, you know, it's kind of like, well, you saw what happened to those guys. So, uh, you know, get, get back in your lane. Absolutely. I mean, I think we can see how, you know, intellectually that ties right back to the idea when we were talking about those looking to restrict um, the work of library workers, right. And instilling a level of fear in them that they're going to then self-censor. So while I have a lot of compassion for the students who have been doxxed and targeted and harassed for their speech, um, I'm not going to, you know, necessarily state an opinion on the quality of that speech. Um, we are seeing that this is also a threat to everyone else, right? It's keep them in line. And I think that these things happen at elite institutions, not just because they get undue influence in the media, but like also because if you can show and make an example of students at elite institutions, then what's to say those at, you know, more regional institutions or community college or anywhere else are going to feel empowered to step up, right? Because if the students with the most resources in the world are being targeted and harassed. What does that say for someone who's going to school at night and has a job and may may have a family member in Gaza, may have a family member in Israel, may have some kind of deep engagement with these political issues, but they're not going to feel comfortable speaking up because they may be threatened and harassed by, you know, in particular, faculty members and donors. Um, I do think you know, not every student statement has been completely appropriate. You know, I, I'm not about tone policing per se, but I think it's okay to say, hey, maybe that wasn't the message you meant to convey. Maybe it was, right? But we can have that conversation, right? Isn't that the point of academia and higher education to have those conversations to say like, oh no, that was like really inappropriate. Let's find a new way to frame that. Um, and I appreciate that you said, you know, that critiquing a foreign government, the Israeli government is not anti-Semitism. But some of these things are anti-Semitism, right? There have been some statements that have existed, and I, I am speaking for our listeners' benefit. I am a Jewish woman. I light Shabbos candles every week. My children go to religious school. I'm a member of synagogue. I am deeply engaged with American Jewish life. So these are things that I do notice and I see, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to paint any critique of, you know, governmental actions, right? Because this is, this is a government. Government should always be questioned. Like, this is a fundamental democratic principle, especially, you know, one that's not our own, um, without it being anti-Semitism. But there is, there is anti-Semitism. And even the, some of the things that some college students are saying are. Absolutely. 
but let's explain that to them. Like, let's explain it. Let's have a conversation instead of immediately going to the threats and the doxing and the horrible harassment that we're seeing. And I think, you know, there's there's been uh, a rise in, in anti-Semitism both, both here and abroad. There's been uh, a rise in, in incidents and, um, you know, the, um, you know, there's, there's been mass shooting. There's there's all kinds of um, things that we can point to that are um, actual anti-Semitism. And I agree that some of the statements that are you know sort of in favor of one side or other in that whole conflict definitely lean in that in that way, right? And those things do need to be shut down. Um, but I think it is again back to the sort of larger issue of nuance and not painting things with a broad brush, right? I think that's kind of where we're trying to to, to focus the, the conversation here. Just a, a sort of related story to to that whole kind of anti-Semitism, um, anti- or uh, critique of Israel um, conversation. I think you found a, a piece from the New York Times about, it said, powerful, don- powerful donors push universities to condemn criticism of Israel. So this is from New York Times, October 15th. And it's the, that's that's the gist, right? There's a there's a people who give a whole lot of money to these universities, and they want them to sort of tamp down anything that looks like uh, a critique of of Israel or Israeli politics, Israeli policies towards Palestinians, uh, you know, any of those kinds of things. And that's that is not, again, not in keeping with the spirit of open inquiry, um, higher education. What we're supposed to be doing here is as institutions. I mean, absolutely not, right? I think that there is, you know, an intentional conflation among the extremists on either side of this geopolitical conflict speaking political science oriented person, we see extreme dehumanizing rhetoric being used both ways, right? So if you take any critique of a government like Israel as a critique of Jewish people, then you're feeding into that, right? If you try to paint all the Palestinian people as representatives of Hamas, you are also feeding into this. This is an extremely, extremely nuanced, complicated topic, but to be real, like I'm on the side of people, right? Like I want Israeli people to live in safety and freedom. And I want Palestinian people to live in safety and freedom and critiques of policies and actions is totally separate. And I think that that's something that gets lost, right? I I write a lot about rhetoric and language. And sometimes I wonder, well, why couldn't we just say like, we stand with the Israeli people in their time of mourning, or we stand with the Palestinian people also in their time of mourning um, without making our massive educational institutions kind of get in line behind governments. That's still like, I I keep saying it, but it it makes so little sense to me Um, because at no point in, you know, American history would most academics or thinkers have said, we need to stand with the American government unquestionably, right? We can always question our institutions. We should always have room for that conversation. You can say, I understand why a decision is being made, or even I support that decision. But the idea of living in a democracy is that we talk about these things, we grapple with them, and just offering some gentle or not gentle, right, feedback and critique is not inherently threatening to anyone in a democracy, Right, and that—that's where we are. In theory, anyway, right? Um, you found a, uh, yeah. You found a tweet actually that I, I really sort of connected with uh, Dennis M. Hogan uh, at Dennis M. Hogan on uh, on X. I'm going to just keep calling it Twitter. I, <laughs> I, whatever, until that guy goes away. I vote for Twitter. Um, 
Yes. The quote here says, disproportionate attention is paid to the statements of college students on Palestine. But consider this, colleges and universities are some of the only institutions left in our country where the reality of the conflict is taught and discussed. And it goes on. There's a few more connected tweets. and um, But again, the idea is that like there is room for for this discussion and it should it is a discussion that should be happening and it's a discussion that should be happening with all of the the pieces right not just sort of a one-sided um discussion like you can let's go back to let's go back to 9-11 right and you can talk about um any discussion of that uh as an event um does not diminish the the suffering and the loss if you also include the context of you know, the U.S.'s presence in the Middle East and some of their policies in the Middle East and a long, long history of colonialism and other things, um, those things don't cancel each other out. You know, one doesn't excuse the other. Um, and I think you can have a better, more nuanced uh, and more meaningful and educational discussion by remembering that there are a lot of different pieces to it, you know? Absolutely. And I think that that is fundamentally the role of higher education institutions to have those nice conversations. But I also think it's okay to have space for emotional, um, you know, responses, grieving, being in community, right? Like we shouldn't be shutting it down or acting like it's somehow harmful for Jewish students or Israeli students to come together to pray and have, a, you know, a candlelight service or say Kaddish. And we should not be restricting Palestinian students from doing the same, right? Like it is okay for people to express their emotional responses to a current situation um, without that being inherently threatening to an institution. And then we need to move into real conversation, right? Like we do need to have space for both. And if particular people aren't ready to have an intellectual conversation and aren't ready to be a part of that room, then they, they don't necessarily need to go to those conversations. But we should host them. We should have ways to have these kinds of both emotional and intellectual ways to experience life and engage with current events on college campuses. And what it really feels like in this era of um, extreme corporate control of higher education is that a lot of those things are being really restricted, right? Only certain forms of emotional expression are considered appropriate on college campuses. Only certain forms of political speech are considered appropriate. And we, I think no matter where you stand, right, you need to say, how do we bring that back to a place of affirming the humanity of everybody involved? Because students are people too, professors are people too. And we're kind of losing that. We're, we're getting to this kind of knee-jerk response that, oh, they're a threat to me, or, or there's some snark, right? Like, I, the snark is very hurtful, um, and let's not go there. But at the same time, there are people involved in all of these things, and we're all allowed to feel our feelings. We just also need to hold space for other people to be in community with us at the same time. One of the other things that we can sort of think about and talk about here and some of the things that you and I have uh, have definitely talked about is this idea of neutrality, right? And what is the role of the university as an institution uh, when these kind of hot button things come up? There's a article from the Chronicle of Higher Ed by Jeffrey Flyer, October 13th, and the title is, Now is the time for administrators to embrace neutrality. The Israel-Hamas war might finally show colleges the virtue of the Calvin Report. And we can talk about the Calvin Report a little bit. But um, this idea that the institution itself needs to sort of stay out of these kinds of political things and, and not kind of take a stand one way or another. Um, 
is understandable and also problematic, right? Like, and I think so. So, a couple couple of things. Um, you know, there's this idea, and we can talk about it that um, neutrality uh, favors the side of the oppressor, usually, right? By not saying anything and being quote unquote um, neutral, you're sorting let of letting things go that. Um, shouldn't be let go. And that's, that's one piece of this. Um, the other piece of it is the institution itself can remain, uh, quote unquote, neutral. But that also means actually allowing your faculty and students to have the opinions and the expression around all sides of the issue that are definitely not neutral, right? And to have those discussions. And they can't come down like like a hammer to sort of flatten all, all discourse and say, no, this institution is neutral. We don't talk about that. Those two are not the same thing. You know, institution, like, look, the, the president of this institution does not take a stand on Israel versus Hamas or chocolate versus Fenella or whatever it is, um, is one thing. And that's maybe understandable in the kind of climate that we're in. Um, we have talked a little bit about, um, as universities become more corporatized, there's a desire not to alienate any particular group of potential funders or especially politicians who might come down on our, our state funding. <laughs> um, but right. But what you can't do is then translate that that idea of neutrality to mean that nobody can discuss these things. Absolutely. Right. Like we there's this whole idea of, you know, academic freedom and how the faculty drive the institution, right, in an ideal, you know, imagined almost at this point, institution of higher education learning. It's the idea that this is an educational space. Um, and I think we need to be able to hold that and hold multiple truths in our minds that like we're going to hear things that we don't necessarily agree with. Um, the idea of faculty indoctrination has always struck me as a little bit wild, right? Because we can't even get students to read the syllabi. We're certainly not manipulating their brains, speaking as someone who regularly teaches undergraduate classes. However, right, like I don't I don't think we're really manipulating students. I don't think we have a bully pulpit in terms of our everyday conversations in the classroom or events. But at the same time, the faculty should really be the adults in the room, right? Like, and I don't mean that everybody on a college campus for the most part is an adult, but there is, there needs to be a recognition of differentials in power and privilege. So faculty members, particularly those who have tenure track lines or tenure or some form of permanent status, perhaps could take a beat, right? Before attacking students, undergraduate students, usually 18 to 22 year olds, in a national newspaper or contacting their employers or any number of those things, right? Because the students don't at all have the same kind of power. They don't have the ability to make most of us lose our jobs. Let's not talk about contingent faculty. That could be a totally separate episode. But most of the people who are driving these attacks are in extremely stable positions. And I think they should take a beat and think about what that means, right? What does that differential power means? Um, and we need to have these conversations. We need to see the humanity of each other. And we also need to understand that students aren't always going to get it right, right? If they were like expert political communicators, if they already knew how to do all of this, if they already knew how to solve for extremely complex international issues and a soundbite, then they wouldn't need us, right? Like it, higher ed wouldn't need to exist. So there needs to be space for getting it wrong. And there needs to be space for disagreement without those who have the most power on a campus really harming students. Yeah. I, I, was just, I was sort of chuckling to myself a little bit, just thinking about some of the dumbass things that I wrote and uh, 
and probably thought and said as a uh, 18, 19 year old college student, well, hell is this 40, 40, whatever year old man now. But and yeah, I'm glad that there wasn't the, uh, the internet. I might still be canceled. Who knows? Right? right? Like, I Thank goodness. I had my laptop from undergrad stolen. And I'm like, oh, well, I guess nobody will ever see how poor of a writer <laughs> I was then, right? Or what half-baked ideas that I came up with at the time. And it's a little bit unfortunate that these students need to play these things out in the public sphere. And it's um, it's inappropriate. So anyway, we were talking about institutional neutrality and what that actually means, what that actually looks like. A couple of these articles reference a letter or report from the University of Chicago from 1967. It's commonly referred to as the Calvin Report, as K-A-L-V-E-N. And, you know, obviously 67, the war in Vietnam, there are all kinds of political activity on college campuses. Uh, I think the university at the time felt the need to sort of dip into this question of what is the university's appropriate role in these kinds of larger political, social, cultural debates. And the report is sort of, uh, this is actually the first time that I've heard about it in, um, as we were researching this episode, um, but it's kind of an interesting one. It's, it basically comes to sort of the conclusion that, I'll just read a little bit here from it. It says, the university has a great and unique role to play in fostering the development of social political values in a society. The role is defined by the distinctive mission of the university and defined, too, by the distinctive characteristics of the university as a community. It is a role for the long term. And it goes on to talk about how the mission of the university is discovery, improvement, dissemination of knowledge, um, scholarly um, inquiry, the institution by its design and effect. It is the institution which creates discontent with the existing social arrangements and proposes new ones. In brief, a good university like Socrates will be upsetting. The instrument of dissent and criticism is the individual faculty member or the individual student, which is what we were saying about sort of the um, the, their, their role, right? Um, the university is the home and sponsor of critics. It is not itself the critic. It is, to go back to the classic phrase, a community of scholars. So the neutrality of the university as an institution arises from not a lack of courage nor out of indifference and insensitivity. It arises out of respect for free inquiry and the obligation to cherish a diversity of viewpoints. And this neutrality as an institution has its complement in the fullest freedom for its faculty and students as individuals to participate in political action and social protest. It finds its complement, too, in the obligation of the university to provide a forum for the most searching and candid discussion of public issues. So it's really sort of a, uh, I think, kind of progressive sort of forward thinking statement on the sort of the, the mission of higher education in the university. And what it says is that the university stays out of this stuff for the sake of the scholarly inquiry, right? And like when the university takes a stand one way or another, it necessarily sort of comes down on, you know, on one side of those debates and, and puts its thumb on the scale, so to speak. But that's, a, again, a little bit different from what we're talking about here, right? Yeah, I absolutely think it is. And, you know, I, in my library and scholarship and writing, I'm often a critique of the idea of neutrality, right? I don't think that it truly exists in the real world. Um, however, massive institutions like most universities um, have the ability to kind of be a container for a multiplicity of viewpoints, right? We can see that. And if we don't have space for that, progress doesn't happen. And this thing 
often comes to the forefront in our regular communication, or at least it has in the past, with the idea that like conservative viewpoints are being silenced on campus or something along those lines. And you know, that has not been my experience, right? Maybe, maybe there's some loudmouth students that are doing a protest or something, but that's not the same thing as the scholarship that's being generated by the faculty. That's not the same thing as the content of courses or syllabi or curriculum. And, you know, the vast majority of faculty are not trying to push any one viewpoint or the other, right? They're trying to teach them disciplinary knowledge. This is how you do a thing. Or they're trying to teach people how to think critically about something so they have a framework to build off of. Um, And that process necessarily means that there needs to be room for pushing the outer limits and boundaries of what is currently, you know, super socially acceptable. And that can mean things like social science and humanities. It can also mean things like engineering and science and those things. Because if we think at scientific development at its, you know, core often isn't profit generated, right? So where else are you going to be able to explore and really grapple with new ideas that may or may not pay off in the long term, other than institutions of higher education in the same way we can grapple with social concepts, humanities concepts, And there's a lot of value to having space for things that are not immediately marketable or maybe even not immediately palatable. Maybe it it really is the cutting edge, the forefront of a way that we're going to shift the way we're thinking about things. But that's the role of research. That is fundamentally the whole point of what we're doing here. And that's also the role of higher education institutions to provide that container. So I do think as much as I often will be like, well, neutrality is not great. I don't necessarily have a better term for what a massive organization like a university should be doing. Um, And I think we're seeing people put their thumb on that and attempt to restrict the speech or the ideas of things like particularly faculty members or student groups or those kinds of things in a way that's really, really harmful and pernicious. Because let's be real about where the threats actually are. Let's not pretend like there aren't threats to minoritized voices, right? There is anti-Semitism, there is Islamophobia. Those things exist particularly within American society from the extreme far right. That's true. But just saying a threatening idea or, hey, maybe we can reframe our thoughts on something is not an actual threat to someone's safety. And when we start getting to this, oh, if you're talking about a thing in a radical way, I find that threatening. We're going all the way back to McCarthy era ideas around who's around to say, allowed to say what, where. And same thing happened around you know that post 9-11 period that we keep returning to. There were a lot of voices silenced. Like I'm, I don't agree with some of these voices, right? That's not at all what I'm saying here. But I do think they should be heard and I don't think they should be silenced. And I certainly don't think people should have their jobs, their livelihoods, even their freedoms threatened for pushing the envelope in terms of concepts. That's not the same thing as inciting violence. You know, I can't believe I've gone this long in higher ed without actually having read this uh, this report, and it's really it's only like two pages long. I actually recommend that folks um, take a look at. It. You can you can search for Google; it comes right up. Um, we'll link it from the resources section of our website. I don't know if you noticed that, by the way. Our uh, first episode, I went back and added some of the links that we talked about, some of the news stories and stuff. So, if you hear something on the show, you want to learn a little bit more about it, we'll provide that on the website, uh, ykwfupodcast.com So you can go back and you know do your own research, as they say. That doesn't mean watching YouTube videos about how the Earth is flat. That's a uh, this is actual like <laughs> reading yes. and study. Um, but this thing is, is I don't know if the kids were, were texting about this report, it would have multiple fire emojis um, because it's, uh, 
it's a statement, I tell you what. Um, it says, it is a community which cannot take collective action on the issues of the day without endangering the conditions for its existence and effectiveness. There's no mechanism by which it can reach a collective position without inhibiting that full freedom of dissent on which it thrives. It cannot insist that all of its members favor a given view of a social policy. If it takes collective action, therefore, it does so at the price of censuring any minority who do not agree with the view adopted. It is, in brief, a community which cannot resort to majority vote to reach positions on public issues. And that's kind of the way and where it comes down on the, the neutrality side. Um, and then it also goes on to say that basically the university uh, forfeits its neutrality when it acts like a corporation. And that's a terrible thing. And it should never do that, um, which <laughs> that ship has sailed. But um, yeah. this, that shift is uh, maybe that's an episode all, all of its own. Um it shouldn't. This is the this is the quote actually. Um, Our basic conviction is that a great university can perform greatly for the betterment of society. It should not, therefore, permit itself to be diverted from its mission into playing the role of a second-rate political force or influence, which is really powerful. And again, I think when uh, when you get donors, when you get politicians saying the university needs to suppress a certain kind of speech, the university needs to take a certain stand on this issue or that issue, that flies in the face of exactly what it is we're doing here. Um, and again, there's there's a shift that's happened in American higher education, and I'm assuming worldwide higher education, where it's become less about you know the inquiry, the learning, the development, the growth, and more about um, training people for jobs, right, and getting full employment, becoming productive wage earners or, you know, whatever. And you can argue about the, the pluses and minuses of that all day. Those are, those are different missions. I think sometimes we, I don't know, I think, I feel like universities still pay lip service to the, the former, you know, the, the, to me, the real mission of the university, um, while really kind of pursuing policies that are all about the, the latter, which is um, making sure everything is squeaky, qu squeaky clean politically and inoffensive and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so anyway, and that leads us to actually something you were asking about is this sort of idea of the university, like official statement on events. And it does seem like anytime something happens, you know, whether it's a shooting, whether it's a, you know, an invasion of, of the Ukraine, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, the, the terrorist attacks by Hamas, like, we get the sort of uh, cookie cutter kind of boilerplate uh, statement of, of whatever it is, solidarity, support, um, understanding, good vibes, whatever it is from every university and not just every university, every corporation feels the need to put one out. They're all more or less the same. Um, I, I remember at the beginning of the, the pandemic, my inbox was full of emails, marketing emails from every company I'd, I'd ever even looked at telling me how they were here for my family in this difficult time, which, you know, obviously I, I very much appreciate it. I felt just so comforted by that as I <laughs> hid inside my house for the 800th day in a row. But um, to know that Hertz Rent-A-Car cared about me and my family and our safety. We're spinning off all kinds of topics for shows here. Um, there was a, <laughs> there was a university, uh, I don't know if it was one of, I think it was one of the latest mass shooting day who can keep track um, where their communications office sent out one of these generic things that they had used um, chat GPT to write uh, and then subsequently forgot to take off the little tag at the bottom that says this was written by chat GPT. Oh goodness. <laughs> and what's so funny about it is because if you put that statement up next to one of the dozens or hundreds of others, um, that came out of various organizations. You would 
not be able to tell the difference, right? I mean, that is a future topic, right? Generative AI and its impact in education, because it's just spitting out the stuff it's picking up. And so it's going to look exactly the same because it's spitting out what it sees. I also, I just, I have major questions about the purpose and intent of those kinds of statements and where we think that will eventually lead us within higher education. Because again, like I think university administrators are, you know, I hope they're doing their jobs well, right? That is their job. But is it their job to speak for the thousands or tens of thousands of student and faculty affiliated with the institution on a particular issue? I don't know, right? Like, I I, I don't know. And I, I have heard people say, like, I want to hear that my institution cares. I have heard that and I hear that. But how do they do that? How do they thread that needle without wading into political waters when it comes to any number of social or, like issues and you know fundamentally institutions in 2023 are neoliberal right they are very very controlled by profits they need to get tuition dollars they need to get donor dollars they need to exist kind of within the capitalist sphere unfortunately that's just the truth and to do so requires a level of you know wishy-washy milk toast statement making on the part of these <laughs> administrators and so is that is that meaningful is that resonant I, I haven't seen one that seemed to do it right yet. And, yeah. you know, listeners, if you have one that did it right, we'd love to see it. Um, yeah. But it all kind of feels like it could have been just generated by one of these AI bots. Yeah. For well, and it's purely, it's purely performative, right? It's there so that somebody can't say, well, clearly the institution doesn't care because they didn't release that kind of statement, right? I was just going to say, can an institution care? Like, people can care. But these are organizations. Just like Hertz Rent-A-Car doesn't actually care about you personally, Tim. I'm sorry. What? But <laughs> me and Miss Me and Mr. Hertz, we go way back. Yeah, it's a it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. Just like corporations aren't people, universities aren't people either. No. It's a it's a strange place that we're in. This podcast is sponsored by Hertz Rent-A-Car. They care about you and your family. <laughs> Don't come for us, please. <laughs> <laughs> Hertz, you have a fine product. But I'm not taking a stand on the Hertz versus Enterprise uh, salt talks. That's that's not for me to say. Um, so I want to I want to broaden this out real briefly, and I want to bring it back and maybe we can talk a little bit about sort of a way forward, right? Um, so we've been talking specifically about this sort of one kind of political um, topic, and it's in a major one. It's an important one, um, but I think there's you know a broader trend here where scholars, faculty, um, maybe to an extent students feel like they have to sort of self censor self. Um, police almost um, to avoid running into the kinds of, of troubles that we've talked about with their jobs, with uh, social media backlash or whatever. Um, so here's a quote. There's an article from Inside Higher Ed. The author is uh, Reshmi Dutt Ballerstad and Johnny E. Williams from October 12th, 2023. And the title is Who Can Speak on the Israel-Palestine Conflict? And they're sort of talking about the, this very issue. And I'll just read a quote here. It says, faculty members regularly avoid speaking about anti-blackness, anti-black racism, white supremacy, whiteness, settler, settler colonialism, sexism, sexual misconduct, xenophobia, and corporatization of universities and austerity measures. Such avoidance or even silencing ensures professors do not engage in independent thought and inquiry as a public good, but rather as a private interest. With corporatization, universities operate essentially as producers for the job market, forsaking their traditional mission of fostering creative, independent inquiry, challenging perceived beliefs, and exploring new horizons. So, um, 
so just beyond this particular issue, you know, I have a uh, a friend here in my my current university who uh, who writes about you know sexuality issues in in video games, for example, and their um, one of their concerns is you know in a state like like this um, sort of red state, like what's the uh, what what's the political risk of uh, researching even researching about it um, and then writing and publishing about it? Um, people who write about you know LGBTQIA issues, of course, run into this all the time. Um, as we talked about you know book bans and other types of censorship last time, um, school and public librarians are definitely dealing with this. But I think it uh, we're losing. I think sort of the full range of scholarly inquiry that we could be having in the sort of honest and open and productive discussions because people are just not, they're just like, well, that's an, you know, that's a topic that, that could be explored. I don't have the, basically the, the courage or the, uh, privilege or the whatever, um, to, to go after it. I think that those who are outside of this academic sphere aren't aware of how much self-censorship really goes on. You know, universities since the sixties have been viewed as kind of a bastion of revolutionary fervor. Um, and that's just fundamentally untrue in our particular era. It is a time where people are afraid to say things. They're afraid to speak up. Faculty, graduate students, anyone with any level of precarity at all often is afraid of upsetting the powers that be. And, you know, I've, you know, even tenured faculty will make decisions not to say things, not to speak up because they're afraid of, you know, any numbers, uh, kinds of retribution that can happen. Um, we're in a period of precarity. Like I've said that before, but it's true. Um, and that precarity is now being played out in the fact that people are making choices on what they research, where they live, what kind of jobs they take. And that's not even to count the voices that aren't heard in higher education, right? The people who, who weren't able to get a job, but everyone makes these choices. I don't think I have talked to a faculty member uh, to be, no, I've talked to a few older white men felt totally confident you know, 20, 30 years ago that I've had tenure saying whatever they want to say, right? But like anybody, you know, Gen X through millennial on down, there is a level of concern around any kind of hot button research, speech, class, topic. And the people who are most policed and most surveilled, like we should say this as two white people, are people of color, people with minoritized identities. Like that is real. And that's where this whole institutional neutrality thing can't necessarily sit comfortably when it comes to interacting with the very real people on our campuses. The people who are the most likely to be targeted for harassment are absolutely people with marginalized identities, even within higher education. So we need to hold space for that and protect them. But ultimately, I think having policies and procedures in place that protect all kinds of speech can be used as a tool to protect people who may feel even more at risk by expressing these things. And I think we will be a better society if we can get to back to that idea that it's on us to protect everyone else who's here with us. We're all in this together. We need to have open-hearted conversations. We need to affirm the humanity of everyone in the room, no matter what they're saying, and then find a way to move forward. Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm glad you brought it around to that because actually I think that's a good way for us to kind of um, maybe wrap up and and talk about you know how things move forward. You sent me this really um, sort of I don't know uplifting article after sort of a, a rough week of watching the news. <laughs> you know you watch, you watch enough of this stuff and you're like God damn it I just can't I can't. Um, but this here's one maybe help help you feel feel good. I don't know this is from forward.com. Uh, which is Jewish independent nonprofit news source. Um, and the article is many universities fumbled reactions to Hamas's attack. Here's how Dartmouth university got it right. Uh, and a little sub 
head there is two forums organized by professors from across the Middle East, pushed thoughtful dialogue instead of protest. Um, and so, you know, they you start with uh, the attacks. They start with the Harvard letter. They start with um, some of those some of those discussions, including some of the kind of problematic uh, responses that we talked about, some of those that maybe did tip a little to uh, towards anti-Semitism or maybe tip a lot towards anti-Semitism. And instead of, you know, pushing it down, instead of trying to say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to talk about that, or we're only going to have sort of dueling protests. Um, they said, let's, let's get into it. Right. And says, um, the extraordinary fact of Dartmouth's radical out of the box approach to an emotional complex issue spearheaded by a group of Middle Eastern academics from diverse national and religious backgrounds. So they had sort of a, uh, public forum. Um, they had professors from Israel, Lebanon, and Egypt, the university president, president kind of sent out a, uh, an actual statement, I think, that sort of actually kind of engaged with, uh, you know, what what's going on and, and why um, the university was sort of taking this approach. I think that was a good way to, like, set the tone. That's, that's an appropriate thing for leadership to do. Um, and they really sort of threw it together on the fly, but I think they realized that it was important enough to to do it and do it right. Um, so it says they did a, a small classroom discussion. They thought maybe 20 people would show up. They had more than 100 people show up, and then they ended up sort of streaming it to a separate video feed. Uh, and then they had a second forum with 300 people and over 5,000 viewers on YouTube so far, and this was from a, uh, earlier this week. So it's probably... Uh, more the viewers than that now. It says, uh, we can do two things at the same time, uh, Fisher said, according to a report on the administration-run news site. We can be morally outraged at brutality, and we can try to understand what leads to it, where it comes from, what explains it, and so on. Those are not mutually exclusive things, which I think is what we were saying a little bit earlier. It says, and in college, that's what we're doing. That's why we study. So that, that was a really cool article. I'm glad that you found that. What do you think? Yeah, I really appreciated that. And I appreciated that they kept it grounded in, in relationships, right? I think this can get lost no matter how hot and button the issues are. As you said, they threw this together on the fly. But what I read in the article was that these faculty members were friends, right? They were already able to have an existing dialogue and relationship, even if they had opposing positions. And so they were able to immediately respond, right? And most universities have a wealth of resources. We need our administration and our faculty to know enough and be in conversation enough and have enough trust that when something happens that is timely, right, relevant, hot button, emotionally wrenching, that they can draw on those resources and say, huh, who, who is appropriate? Who feels safe enough to speak up to, right? Because these faculty members obviously had to feel safe and stable enough to speak up under that administration um, in whatever way that they did. I have not watched the live feed yet. I fully intend on doing so. But I think that what this was really rooted in, not only is this like a beacon of hope, but I think you can intuit a level of structural support and a level of relationship that exists within this institution that is sometimes getting lost as we move to this kind of job training, corporate sponsored, we're here to, you know, sell ourselves kind of existence of a university. And this is really going back to that almost old school liberal arts idea that we are all here to have a conversation and the fact and the administration trusts the faculty and the faculty trusts the administration. Yeah. There's a quote here from one of the, uh, one of the folks involved who uh, says it, it could, it could be pulled right out of that Calvin report it says, I think we as colleagues are very interested in nuance and in our scholarship. So we are people who are not looking to use scholarship to make political statements. We're not here to give them political rants said Heschel. We're here to teach. Um, and you know, that's, that's what we've been talking about. Um, so 
this is a you know again a, a good a good example of a way to do it right and i can pretty well guarantee you that students and faculty at um at this particular school felt more supported by this as you said than than any kind of bland uh you know statement from central administration <laughs> could have uh, made them feel this is actual meaningful engagement not just uh, not just rhetoric and i think it's actually meaningful engagement in a way that again respects the complexity of the issue and the real people involved on both sides. If there's anything we can end with or tidy it up with is that there are real people involved in all sides. I don't even like the both sides framing um, and that we need to remember that even when we're all getting kind of spun up and even even college administrators are people too, right? So let's keep that in mind as we talk through um, challenging issues and hold space for those people to exist within a modern university as well. Yeah, that's a great way to wrap it up. I appreciate that. Um, I so actually, I think this turned out into a pretty good uh, discussion when we were <laughs> when we were talking about it. My notes uh, when I first started creating the notes for this one episode, I I titled it episode two, the one where we get canceled, um, because I thought you know it's it's hard, right? It's hard to talk about this stuff. It's um, and but I think again, it's important. Uh, it's important not to shy away from it. Um, and you know, maybe you don't say everything perfectly every time. Um, but I think the the discussion is what's important. So I appreciate the discussion with you and your perspective and your yeah, just your your big brain. Appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate you, team. I appreciate that you know you're willing to wade into these uh, challenging waters with me. You know, and and put that out there for other people to hear. I think that's. That's pretty big. And I hope that uh, other people will feel comfortable engaging with these conversations with each other, with our colleagues, or maybe with us, right? Send us an email. Tell us what you're thinking as well. We're here to to listen for sure. Once that viewer mail starts rolling in, and we can do whole episodes where we just respond to your questions. Uh, you can ask what's wrong with my face. You can ask whatever you want. Um, so you can find us, of course, at ykwfupodcast.com. Again, we've um, got the episodes up there. We've got pages with resources. You can find out a little bit about us, your co-hosts. Uh, we'll add some links from today's episode so that you can uh, do a little more reading and research on your own. You can drop us that email at ykwfupodcast at gmail.com. We are now on, I think, most of the major podcast apps. Um, so wherever you'd like to listen to your favorite podcasts, you should uh, click like and subscribe and give us a 100 star rating or whatever. As high as it goes is what you should rate us. I, I don't look at the apps, but um and tell your friends we're uh, we're having a good time. We'll we'll probably do this even if um, only our spouses listen. But we hope that you all uh, find something to uh, to enjoy. So for today, I'm your co-host Tim, and signing off for my co-host Allison. And we will see you next time. Bye, y'all.